most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I am joined with my team of Orson fanatics, and we love Orson Welles, and we love chatting about these commentaries. This is the second commentary of about Orson Welles, and uh, for this commentary, we're going to uh, start off with Terry talking about a little bit about the, the commentary and what he pulled out of it. Um, we're going to have uh, Terry Phillips with us, of course, Kathy Fuller Seeley, Vincent Longo, and Zach Eastman, all to give kind of our insights into these commentaries as we go. And uh, I think we'll just go ahead and get started because these commentaries always go kind of long anyway. So let's go with Terry first. Terry, what, did, what stood out to you in this one and kind of bring us up to speed? A little difficult to think about how this might have been presented today because so much has changed since, uh, since September 23rd, 1945, when this commentary was originally broadcast. And the most interesting thing about this one is how, looking back all these years later, Wells was right about some things and very wrong about some other things. But he was passionate in what he said and had lots to say, beginning with some, some predictions. He, he first makes reference to a, a, uh, a prediction by a man in Pasadena that did not come true. And I must confess, I had no idea what he was talking about, so I did a little research. And on September the 21st, 1945, the world was supposed to end. And that was according to the Reverend Charles Long, who in 1945 was uh, known by everybody because he was a very prominent um, religious figure, American uh, clergyman, who, among other things, predicted that the world would end. Well, you and could say he was a long way off. He was a very long way <laughs> off. And so he, uh, he changed his prediction when he woke up. <laughs> <laughs> and... And then the world was going to end on September 29th, which it didn't. And then it was going to end in October of 1946 and then in 1947. And uh, along the way, nothing happened. So <laughs> with that background, Wells said, well, I guess I can make some predictions too. And so he <laughs> three things. Now, again, this is September 23rd, 1945. Orson Welles predicted that within three years there would be nine countries in the world with the atomic bomb. Guess which prediction came true? Not that one. The next country after the United States, which at that time was the only nation in the world with the atomic bomb, the very next country was, of course, the Soviet Union. And it didn't get the bomb until 1949, four years later. And then, of course, the, the other countries that followed uh, took even even longer to get uh, the the, uh, the atomic bomb, and it never reached the number nine. Um, I'll just quickly mention the uh, the eight countries which had it: the United States, uh, Russia, today Russia, the Soviet Union at the time, uh, Great Britain. Uh, number four was China, followed by France, and then many years later, India and Pakistan. And the eighth country, which has never formally acknowledged that it has an atomic bomb, but by all indications does, is uh, the state of Israel. 
but it never reached the number nine, which was Wells' prediction, and it certainly didn't happen within three years. But it's okay. Everybody's entitled to, to be wrong. His second prediction was about a man named Eric Johnson, who later became known as Eric Johnston, after his parents got divorced and his last name was modified by his mother. And Johnston was a very prominent figure in 1945, and even before he was an American emissary in many places around the world, including uh, re representing American interests in the Soviet Union before Avril Harriman became our ambassador there. He uh, was very involved, and in, he was a very prominent businessman, very involved in Republican politics, but was very supportive of uh, FDR during the war, and became the head of the Motion Picture Association of America, even before it was called the MPAA, it had a different, longer name. Wells refers to him as being the new head of the Hayes office. Um, he wasn't actually the head of the Hayes office. The Hayes code was was sort of taken over by the uh, the motion picture producers. Grand office and stuff like that. Right, and he did eventually become the head of that, and Wells predicted he would be very good for the motion picture industry, and he was, although uh, he was also a controversial figure. And then the hey, third prediction. Can I interrupt you there for a second, Terry? Is that all right? Yeah. I, I want to yeah, yeah. swing over to Zach for just a second, because he's our yeah. motion picture special. Can you explain, right. Zach, a little bit about what the Hayes Code was and why it came about and what uh, just for listeners um, fully yeah and um, and i'm sure kathy can tag into this as well because she's 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 got way more experience on me but there was a time when uh the morality of hollywood was of huge question um i should say it's still a question that people seem to ask for some reason um but <clears throat> at the time it was deemed that the motion picture industry was the cause of a lot of immorality around the country and a lot of devious behavior and there was a code put in place that Hollywood didn't very much keep to until certain events really pushed them into the code had to be solidified so post 1933 1934 I want to believe Kathy um you have uh the code in strict force that's why we refer to some films as pre-code because you can see there's a lot more salacious content, um, a lot of se mostly sexual content, um, also extreme violence, um, as could be shown of that time. Um, controversial issues could be much more addressed in a freer zone. Uh, once this Hayes Code is instilled in this production code, combined with state and local censor boards, which did exist and were a further source of headache for the studios, um, Hollywood had to tighten its grip on its content, and that's why you see a lot of content become fluffy, become uh, saccharine, uh, and a lot of studios deciding to not touch certain genres. Most of the gangster genre and the horror genre get the biggest hits to the head when it comes to these production codes, and eventually they learn how to circumvent those and also to, frankly, just kind of ignore certain things past a certain point uh, post-World War II because you have a revitalization of gangster by way of noir and horror films um, found their resurgence in a way that gave you a little bit of what you wanted from the past but also kind of toned it down. I think The Wolfman might be the most salacious that comes in the post-code era um, 
and so with Johnston entering what would then become the Motion Picture Association of America, it is a sense of the times changing. We're aware that in a post-war world, the world is a lot more awakened to things that an isolationist country might have been very uh, hesitant to let out there in the world. Um, keep in mind that this is in this is a this is a production code that also tells us that we shouldn't be addressing the problems of Nazism uh, in our films uh, up until Warner Brothers actively decides to break that with the Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Um, so it's 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 a sign that the times are changing, and that's why he probably refers to the idea of him being good for the motion picture business. But I do find it's interesting that he says, yet we still won't be able to show the same amount of stuff that we find in a comic strip. And I I found that very interesting because you you not too long after this you get the Frederick Wortham controversy surrounding the comic book industry. Um, and that whole nonsense. And you, but you do have Wells acknowledging that things are improving. You can show more. He'd be able to show a lot of that with two of his more Hollywood-driven outings with Lady from Shanghai and eventually Touch of Evil. So um, he's looking forward to this clearly. But I also sense there's a little bit of dis general disdain for the idea of censorship in general. Yeah, Kathy, um, the do you know if, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, and maybe anyone else can jump in, the, I think the most interesting film series to, to view under this uh, Hayes piece is, I believe the first Tarzan movie with, with Weismuller is pre-code, and all the rest of them are post-code. And so you can watch that first one, and certainly um, Maureen O'Sullivan is that who plays Jane? Uh, she's yes. very skintily clothed in the in that first one, and in the second one, she has a complete like tunic sort of thing that's covering much, much more and and things. And in the first one, they had a nude swimming scene that she did, but I believe even pre-code they decided that was pushing it too much, and I think they cut it and didn't release that. But now, of course, on YouTube you can see the 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 footage. Um, it's not her they at the at the time and continue to do this they used a body double for her to do the swimming scenes and so forth so so you're not seeing marina sullivan when you see the naked swimmer but uh it is fairly uh, a risque piece for sure when you see that piece it's surprising that, that they would put that in a film and you can see why they sort of came well, up with haze but go ahead well, um, the, the context of, of applying up the sexuality and the violence was that the um, uh, box office had dropped nearly 50%, and Hollywood was desperate uh, uh, to uh, pull people back to the box office, and you use sex and violence to uh, uh, make re people reluctant to uh, get rid of a nickel or a quarter to come back wait, to wait. the movies. So, so you're saying sex and violence sells? That's news to me. I, boy, I'm shocked. I shocked. shocked. Well, not shocked. that shocked. <laughs> but certainly what, um, I, and I so appreciate Terry bringing this up, certainly what Orson would have looked forward to, I mean, hopefully in this new era of post-war things, might be that whole um, collapsing of that machinery of the production code. Because not only did they censor films at the very end, but from the very beginning, mm -hmm. a, a filmmaker had to submit the script and they would go through the script with red 
pencils saying you can't do this and you can't do that from the very beginning. They would say these titles and these subjects can't be filmed. So certainly um, 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 Orson Welles would have been, you know, looking forward to a new kind of cinema, uh, kind of like maybe the um, Italian neorealism or some other kinds of uh, uh, non-U.S. cinemas that were uh, exploring other topics. Right. So it's a, it's a good time to be um, optimistic. And, and I appreciate, Terry, that you uh, telling us more about what he's being optimistic about. And, and Kathy, the greatest, uh, the most tragic victim of the Hayes Code, of course, was uh, my favorite movie, Casablanca, which got drastically changed because, A, you could not have any suggestion of uh, Rick and Ilsa having uh, had sex when they were both, well, she was married, but still when they were having an affair together in Paris. Uh, at the end, I mean, the end, the ending was affected by the Hayes Code because he had to let her go back with her husband. You know, he couldn't have this, he couldn't follow his, couldn't follow his heart. So, uh, yeah, it, Casablanca it, and the Hayes Code. It, oh. To give some context, too, as to why Wells might, might have some strong opinions, even because, like, he, he fell under censor boards in certain respects. But this, but this idea at large, I think it's best summed up by the case of the Black Cat from 1934. Because that film has, amongst other things, satanic ritual and incest. And what's funny is, is that the Breen office told them, like, all right, you're hanging yourselves if you try to release this movie. But when we researched it for, for my show, Ballyhoo, we found that the Catholic Legion of Decency had issues with it but there were also catholic groups that recommended it as family viewing <laughs> okay <laughs> so what wells looks at a system like this and goes well this is nonsense like this makes no sense because not no there's no unity in the discussion and there's no unity in opinion so anything is subject to anybody's whims like no different than southern censors potentially being an issue with the Jack Benny Rochester team up movies were it not for the fact that, that team was so popular, you know, those are those, that's a whole board that would be scolding a film for having a white man and a black man talking to each other right. uh, in, in casual conversation that wasn't subservience uh, driven. So yeah, Wells is happy to see this kind of ease itself out of the consciousness of the public. Yeah. Well, and I believe, Terry, you had more ground you were going to cover, so why don't we switch There's back. One more prediction, and this becomes the, the basis for a, a number of uh, future Wells commentaries, and it's about the London Peace Conference, where uh, the foreign ministers and uh, the uh, American Secretary of State were um, represented and tried to work out what the world would look like after the Second World War. And it was a mess and it was very controversial. There were walkouts and um, the United States and the Soviet Union really came to, not to blows, but to uh, loggerheads over whose uh, forces would occupy which countries and who would be dominant in the world. And anyway, Wells points out that this would, and correctly so, that this would uh, continue to be troublesome. And it was not only throughout the rest of this year, 1945, but the years to, to come. Uh, and was really the precursor to the Cold War. Now, Wells spends a lot of time in this episode talking about the USO. And without going into any details about this, it is really interesting to hear him talk about the 
the right to criticize what the USO does or doesn't do. And he does it in a very even-handed way while not hesitating to give his own opinion. So he was a good reporter, if you will, and at the same time, a good commentator on this topic. Um, one of the people he mentions, and there's a Jack Benny connection here, is Drew Pearson, who was a commentator, another liberal commentator uh, and friend of Orson Welles, someone he admires. And the Benny connection, uh, anybody care to guess the Benny connection to Drew are Pearson? You, are you speaking of, of Drew Pearson? Is that who yes, you're... That's yeah, so I, 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 don't, I don't know. I believe that's Drew, how it's pronounced according I, to the Benny show. I don't I, know who Drew, uh, who Drew Pearson is. I only know that Drew Pearson was one of our finest commentators. <laughs> and I will not hear anybody besmirching his name on this program. <laughs> yeah, I just, to, just to let listeners know, um, they, uh, I think it was... Don Wilson that was talking about that's right uh, Drew Pearson and <laughs> mispronounced the name and then it became this kind of running joke about how he couldn't pronounce the name correctly and so forth and especially because Don Wilson's our announcer who usually gets everything right and uh, yeah it, it became a big thing and and they brought it later in the show the writers quickly threw something together for um, uh, oh, Frank Nelson to do Nelson, yeah. and Frank was like this doesn't track and 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 they said just do it it'll be funny it'll go and so then he 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 mentioned it again and um then the crowd just went crazy and and uh, it, it worked very very well it you've got almost as big a laugh as your money or your life yeah yeah yes i would agree with that and wow. and uh, it was charming and uh, it was just a name check to the to the to the wrong pronunciation of drew pearson again but it was done very well and and uh and, and they just changed the joke slightly and it played much better. So that was but for Wells in this commentary, Drew Pearson's name, of course, was, was known by everybody. He was one of the most yeah. famous uh, published figures in the United States. And not without controversy himself, of course, because he oftentimes had scoops that turned out to be incorrect and oftentimes even based on, on false leads. But certainly as a fellow commentator, uh, Pearson was was widely known. The very last thing that I want to mention here comes at the very end of this commentary, and it kind of caught me by surprise because it came out of nowhere. He mentioned seeing a sign in a parking lot, uh, either in in Beverly Hills or somewhere in the LA area, I think, and the sign says said, "No bailment created here." And Wells said, and maybe it was true, that he didn't understand what that sign meant. He didn't know the meaning of the word bailment. And he said, if anybody can tell me what that means, I'll give you, a, you know, free tickets to my movie or something, whatever his, <laughs> the prize was. Now, uh, I have to confess, I, I spent a year in law school. Um, at the end of that year, the law school and I agreed that we would go our separate ways. But during that year, I remember learning the meaning of the word bailment. And so I will put it on the table here. Do the rest of you know this term and why there would be a sign at a parking lot that says no bailment created here? And whoever gets the right answer will get uh, a free sneak preview to um, the next episode of Imaginary Theater. And I don't know what the meaning of the word parking lot is. So <laughs> <may have> to... <laughs> 
<laughs> so you're really at a loss. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm just kind of sitting here drooling. <laughs> but but it, that it's not a um, uh, uh, the the bump to keep you from rolling out of your space. The thing yeah, my no, uh, my bumper took up. I I think it, uh, did it mean you can't leave like things there like like garbage and and so forth. I mean, I'm not sure. No, no, no. You're you're warm, but because I, I I remember when I first did this one, I looked it up and I knew what it meant at that point because I explained to people what it meant. But ah. I can't remember now. It's been a year and a half or whatever it's been, and so I can't remember what I looked up. Well, a bailment is a legal responsibility. If I give you my oh, I don't know. Let, let's say I have a a, 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 a an expensive item of jewelry, and I say I, I want you to hold on to this for me. I'm going out of town and I, I need you to, to, to keep to take care of it. And and you do. And I come back and you have uh, lost it or given it away or or uh, it, it, it was destroyed in a fire and, and the fire was your fault. Well, in giving you my piece of jewelry, I've created a bailment in you. You have a res legal responsibility for taking care of this very, very well. And in a parking lot, when you leave your vehicle, they don't want that responsibility. They want to say, no, no, you just are renting space on our property. No bailment created here. We're not responsible for your car. And oftentimes it'll be more explicit, but you know, not responsible for the contents left behind in your vehicles. But that's, obviously that sign was written by a lawyer and most <laughs> people who park cars had no idea what the sign meant. But that was supposed to be their, their disclaimer so that they were not responsible. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so, no free tickets. You'll see that today. You just don't see them call it bailment. You just see them saying, "Yeah, not responsible for lost yeah. items or damage to vehicles or whatever." Parking. But for many vehicles. years, if you look on the back of the parking ticket that you were given, uh, not a speeding ticket, but you know, the, yeah, yeah, ticket for parking. There, right. It would often have that legal language on it. It oh. might still. I don't know. Harry, this is a very long and convoluted way of telling me that I'm not allowed to park in your garage. I get that's, it. I won't do it again. Well, that's that's not true, Zach. You can park there. I'm just like, responsibility. <laughs> that's right. Okay. All right. Fine. Fair enough. If Vincent steals your car from Terry's uh, Terry's garage, it's <laughs> Terry's fault. <laughs> but Vincent, I'll show you where the keys are. <laughs> well. Uh, We'll swing over to Zach then. Zach, was there anything yeah. else that you wanted to point out in this episode when you listened to it? Anything that stood out? I think we need to address the bull in the room. Yes. Um, and it's, uh, <laughs> uh, I was thinking the same thing, so there you go. Go ahead. Yeah, no, um, the bullfighting story, which is sort of a continuation from the first episode. Mm -hmm. um, his fascination with bulls, uh, with bullfighting in general, is, is intriguing because it's a through line throughout most of his life, but um, it's also telling that he's still telling a story he tried to tell years ago, because this is the story that was supposed to be included in It's All True, um, the documentaries, uh, that he were, he was making for the Goodwill program set up by Rockefeller. Um, it's for, for people who don't have context, um, it's kind of a sore subject in the Wells camp, um, during the making of the Magnificent Ambersons at RKO, Wells was tapped for the uh, creation of these documentaries for the Goodwill Program of U.S.-South America Relations. Um, so they wrap up Ambersons 
as fast as they can, and he is sent out there with a crew to film the carnival. What ends up happening is that Wells discovers a lot of injustice and uh, racial prejudice going on in South America with darker-skinned people down there, and he starts documenting that. And the governments of both the U.S. and South America are like, no, we didn't ask you to do that. No, 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 no. And Wells is like, yes, 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 yes. And the uh, the the documentary reportedly went over budget. It didn't. Because number one, it probably would have been guaranteed by the U.S. government. Because if they were going to guarantee Walt Disney's productions, they were certainly going to guarantee Orson Welles' productions. Um, b- both figures, by the way, that lost a lot of money during the World War II years. Um, uh, so what ended up, happening in this is as he's trying to make this Amberson's falls under the cutting knife of RKO who is insistent on butchering this film after one bad test screening uh and but that was then followed by a much more positive test screening in the California area um and they use this as the impetus to seize control from Wells um, Wells at this time was both trying to film this documentary that spoke of impoverished peoples in South America, as well as the carnival, um, tied into trying to finish up Amberson's. But Amberson's falls out of his control. They reshoot it um, with far more DPs than were on the original set because it wasn't just Stanley Cortez. There were more cameramen on the set of Magnificent Amberson's while Wells was directing it. Um, and so uh, his South America trip is is kind of like a consequence is like is like one of the impetuses for how he loses control of Ambersons because if he were in Hollywood I guarantee you he would have been really uh re- much more uh actively involved um and part of it's all true with it being shelved is that there's imagery in there of lighter skinned people dancing with darker skinned people which was a big no no for the US government they did not want that and so the project falls and fizzles. Thankfully, the footage for the most part exists that was already shot. And thus, there is a compilation from the 90s of this footage together, also telling the story of it, also called It's All True, that thankfully presents the footage. Um, there was also controversy in the fact that there's a st- I I'm not as remembering of this piece so vincent may have to correct me but there's a story that he tells in the documentary about uh people uh, like a boat like fishermen or boatmen uh that um caused a lot of controversy because one of them died uh amid the filming of this and there was seen as uh an exploitative nature of how he was trying to finish that piece of the story and things that he did in order to finish that story. So uh, it seems like it's a big well-to-do issue for Wells that he may not want to ever touch again. And yet he's still clinging to those stories. So I was curious if anybody here had an, in, in, uh, an insight into how Wells would still hold on to some of these because we know he would hold on to projects to the point where some of them wouldn't even get released. Um, but I didn't know if like, how, how much would he hold a grudge with the story itself versus the people who might've tanked it? Cause it seems like 
I mean, Don Quixote would be my best example of how he would always try to keep a story going, um, even if even if there was heartbreak surrounding it. Vincent, you got anything on that? Yeah, it's all true. is is no different than that. I mean, um, as you said, Zach, these cir- these stories from the filming of It's All True. Um, I mean, Wells tells them in various forms throughout his career. I'm thinking of you know the the bull story, for example. He retells yeah. in 1955 show the sketchbook Orson Welles' sketchbook. Mm-hmm. Um, the story of the boatman, which you mentioned, he alludes to a lot of times, lo- largely he alludes to it and talks about it from a sense of guilt and question of, of whether or not they should have went out and filmed that day because essentially they were filming and he fell overboard. He was like this famous, extremely good boatman. Um, you know, but he did also mention like always the hope that he could get his hands on the it's all true footage, which they did keep around for a long time and obviously formed uh, this later documentary. So I remember, I can't remember the exact details of it, but I've heard stories about him saying, of people saying Wells would always say, oh, I would trade, I would trade this footage or this amount of money to buy the footage back so that I could re-edit it. So it was always a dream of his um, to get his hands on that footage. Because like you said, I think um, this is the moment where his, I mean, certainly uh, films like Kane and his theater work were political, but I think he saw this as um to get political on a global scale, to talk about race issues, which his films had not really dealt with. And so this was a really formative moment in sort of his um, politics and artistic sensibility. So I think he would have done anything to uh, get it back. So certainly uh, him telling these stories are like what he's holding on to because he can't show it in, in any other way. Yeah. Well, what's and- so amazing with him is, is he's already in a dicey area after Kane. And then instead of trying to do what most people would tend to do, which is kind of go, oh, okay, I'll go away from controversy for a while, release a few films that will get me back in the good graces of people, and then I can start pushing the envelope again. He just keeps pushing, and and he never seems to know like when to stop or, or what would help his career or whatever. And he and 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 never thinks. It doesn't seem to think about the long term. He's more focused on the short term. And this is what I want to do. And I'm going to do it no matter what anybody says. And it's to the detriment of his long-term career and to what we get from him in the future. In this case, it sounds like Zach saying and Vincent is saying that that essentially him going down and filming this controversial piece, one, was so controversial that it couldn't get released. Two, that it messed up his Ambersons project by him being away from it at the time when he when he would have been able to defend it a little bit more and not maybe had them butcher it and so forth. So it like a, a double whammy on him uh, by doing this. Yeah, Am I there, in the right it, ballpark there, Zach, of what I'm saying. Yeah, and furthermore, there are I mean there are indications that RKO was in certain respects was conspiring against him. There's telegrams. Um, sent off between two officials at RKO that Joseph McBride uncovered not too long ago that really lay down the reality that they were already going to try to do this no matter what. It just really worked out that Morrison was not in the country to to really remind them of the contract that he signed, uh, which is, you don't have to give me a lot of money, but I want control. And that's what they agreed to. And RKO actively shoved him out of that process the following year the slogan was showmanship instead of genius now the 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 trade-off is you do get val luton in a couple like within the year but 
it, it comes at a heavy artistic cost to a lot of extent. Um, like you trade art for art. It's weird. Um, but, and frankly, it speaks to the paradox of Wells, which is on the one hand, he was maligned and ostracized by so many of the people in power. And yet there are times when he wasn't able to compromise to his detriment. Um, I, I'm, I'm firmly in Camp Wells, but I'm fully aware of how Orson can destroy Orson given the chance. <laughs> you right. know, like, right, right. right. Well, uh, Kathy, did you have anything you want to throw in about the commentaries in general or anything about any of the discussion we've had? Or are you good? Or? Um, no, it just uh, fascinates me. Is a, I've, I've said before that I would love to teach a class uh, just sort of based on Orson's commentary and doing, uh, making such a short period of time reminding us of how incredibly rich and controversial things are when it, it takes up a page in a history textbook um yeah. all these things coming to light is fascinating well and the, and the fact that orson can create a 15-minute commentary that we usually ideally if we had our druthers and could just spend as much time on it we'd probably spend an hour talking about this 15-minute commentary every time we we have to edit ourselves as we're going and things and and so sometimes we edit ourselves a little more and we create a 15 minute intro or something. And sometimes we have a 45 minute intro. It just all depends, but uh, it just shows how rich these commentaries are with ideas. And it's not just one idea. It's usually three, four, five. And even when we cover things, if you go back and listen to the commentary, you'll be like, oh, nobody touched on that piece that would have been interesting to talk about. It's just, there's too much. And, and so there's too much to go over. I mean, this whole bullfighting thing, uh, it, it's interesting in that in this episode, he talks about going and how it wasn't a, a very good bullfighting experience. It, it wasn't, he took his friends and he was hoping to like impress them or something to that effect is, is kind of what I got. And it wasn't, uh, it was, it was, it sounds like it, it was a kind of a bloody fiasco of a bullfight, which some of them probably are. Um, did, Terry, Terry, did you get that feeling when you were listening to it that, that it didn't go as, as he'd hoped? Yeah, I did. And uh, I, I think that's true, not only about that bullfight, but about these commentaries. I yeah. think if you were to talk to Orson Welles today, if we could dig him up and, and wake him up and, and have a conversation with him. Wake up, come uh, chat with us. Oh, we can, Terry, we give, can. <laughs> give, give him a cigar and yeah. wind him up. I think my he, cognac? I think he would say about these commentaries that they were, um, well, they were imperfect, that he could not say all that he wanted to say, not, not just because of right. the times, but because of the constraints of the, the medium. And he only, first of all, he only had 15 minutes and right. several, a couple of those minutes were taken up with commercial announcements. And beyond that, he had so much to say. And he said it very well, but for instance, he would tease us in the first episode, he teased us about something he'd say in the second one and then didn't get to it. Right. And so in the second one, he said, well, you know, I said I would talk about this today, going to have to be in a subsequent episode. And he, he meandered around a bit, just as we do in our commentaries about the commentaries. Yes. But it was frustrating to me as a listener to know that there was so much more for him to say. And, and A, there was the limitation of the, the forum. Yes. And B, there was the fact that he only got to do it for how long? A year and change? Yeah. Yeah. So... It's a pity that that we only got this much of Orson Welles, and and that he had a you know by today's terms a relatively short life also, 
There was there was much more for him to do. One of the one of the um, interviews that I watched with Orson Welles in talking about his his life, his career, uh, he indicated in talking in answering a question about Citizen Kane that that was the only time he had the creative the total creative control uh, in his contract, and he said he could make another even better film than Citizen Kane if he had that provision again, if he had that degree of control. Yeah. But he didn't. And so we had the Orson Welles we had. We're, I'm delighted that we have all these commentaries. I learned so much about the history of our country and what was going on at the time and about how to best present a controversial point of view in a way that's inclusive, that everybody can, can hear something that they can, uh, that they can agree with but that still leaves you with a strong point of view. It was, it was just brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I wish that they, you know, I don't know. You can't tone him down. He's, he's Orson, so it, it is what he is, and we have as many as we have. I just sometimes wish or yearn for if he would have done this for like 15, 20 years, that we would have had this huge bank of going through history and being able to experience it firsthand through him and that would have been delightful, but at least we have a year of this. Would have and loved, on top, would have he did similar YouTube. things to this in different ways that we'll be able to talk about in things uh, as we go to. Zach, you were going to say? I was going to say he would have loved YouTube and podcasting for that right. very intent right. and purpose. It, 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 when you think about it, like this, 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 all the things that Wells wanted to accomplish would have been at his beck and call had he, say, been born. 30, 40 years later. And uh, and, and we're not going to live in the what-if land here, but, you know, there would be a strong Orson Welles podcast following on Spotify if, if he had had the opportunity to present his viewpoint on the world. And in a lot of sense, he might have diverged from movies as a result of it, unless, of course, it meant that, well, if I keep spending money and make Don Quixote, I can put it up on YouTube or right. Vimeo and get the audience that I want there. It's 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 something that Kevin Smith's kind of more leaned into of just like, I know my audience is here and I'm going to make movies for my audience as opposed to trying to make something for a, a big mass audience that isn't existing and isn't coming. Um, and so like in a, in a lot of respects, these commentaries provide an early form of what we are inundated with on a daily basis, whether for good or for bad. And in, in a lot of sense too, you get the sense of a of a creative who the his ex-wife would say about him like he, he knew nothing of being social but you put a camera in front of him a new camera and he'd figure out how it work immediately yeah. so he, he's he's um he's very aware of how to adapt to a new technology but um in in a very cane fashion in his terms those are the terms that any man only knows his own and he lived by that to the last living breath on the Merv Griffin show. That's great. Jack, you ask, you raise an interesting question, and I wonder whether either Kathy or, or Vincent might know the answer to this. Do we have any um, data on the size of his audience on these radio commentaries? Mm. How many listeners there were? There were any... four. There were four. <laughs> uh, they tried to build the audience, but they yeah, they, it, they wrote a lot of letters. Those four people, so it, it, it's, it's it's just us. Daryl doesn't even listen to them. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> right. I I've got something from uh, 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 ratings that for a sort of Sunday afternoon at one o'clock, 
um, he was getting kind of a five share, whereas, you know, at this time, Jack Benny was getting a 25 share. But still, I mean, that, that's um, I, Vincent, have you found because I did a cursory look through newspapers.com to find references of people talking about him. And uh, but have you found in your research of more reaction or reception? There, I mean, there isn't a whole lot of reception. Um, you know, people acknowledge the show. I haven't seen that. It was really yeah. not uh, watched. You know, I haven't seen the opposite, which is like the negative. Um, you know, later in the show, we get a lot of chatter from African-American newspapers, which you talk a lot about later. That's when you start to realize like, whoa, people are, are listening to it. But it doesn't, I mean, eventually the um, conservative commentators will start using wells as a sort of uh whipping boy so you get a sense that people are listening to it there but you never get a great sense that people are listening to it but you don't get a great sense that people are like really not listening to it either so i feel like like kathy said we have some sense of at least at one point what their ratings are but this is also a uh sunday afternoon he acknowledges like people are getting out of church like i'm not really sure that this was set up to be a huge listenership so um i think it just why it just has a low bar and it just jumps over that low bar um, today's, uh, using today's term would we call would we have called orson wells a, an influencer maybe possibly this he was heard by people who mattered to him and who then presented yeah. his views to others well, it was clearly enough to get exposure to woodard's case and the the, the thing that i look at it is it's like an extension off of the initial principle in which Mercury Theater on the Air was instituted. It was instituted by CBS as part of elegant programming to bolster, bolster their presence. So they paid for it. It was CBS giving that time over to Orson and this company to do that show. And in a, in a respect, you know, ABC is giving Wells that same form and function, but that doesn't necessarily constitute them promoting the hell out of it you know right. like it it, it 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 really boils down to is it enough to spark the same controversy and listenership that uh, a certain event in uh, a certain event in new jersey did well i'm know? sure that they would like to be able to say of course you know of our things that we air one of the things we have orson on our station isn't that lovely and and they're probably hoping he just, they're like, Orson, just take this little corner of 15 minutes, do what you want to do, but let's not create a whole turmoil over it or anything. They're just hoping he, whatever he does, he does, but but for them, he's just a name check that they could go, well, we have the great Orson Welles on our on our channel, on our station or whatever. So that's, a, that's always a mistake with Orson. Don't do that. Yeah. Like if, if you're, if you're, if you're wanting something calm, that's not the answer to your no. question. And yet they keep <laughs> trying to do that with Orson, hoping that, oh, well, sure. He'll rein himself in this time. Well, he's learned his lesson. It's like, no, a, a true man, a true man cannot be tamed. Um, <laughs> certainly one who is not so fond of Paul mess on wine. Hey, very good. I no, will say, I, 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 I think exactly. that they want. Go ahead, Vincent. I was just going to say, I think that if we if we look at the only evidence of why Lear Radio and ABC thought this was a good idea, I think that they thought that Wells could do commentary in a dramatic fashion. They were like, well, this has got to go somewhere. And so Wells is a name, and I think he can do it in an interesting way. I'm not yeah. sure they thought about the consequences of what he was actually going to start saying, but he can. <laughs> 
you know, like we always talk about at the end of the day, you know, the guy's got a hell of a voice and he is eloquent and uh, creative. And so I think just from an aesthetic point, you know, it it seems like an obviously great idea. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, he gets charged up and and you got to deal with that. And at the time, they do have folks that are getting a lot of audience listens and things for talking about sort of Hollywood gossip sort of thing. And I think that's a little bit about one, what he sort of played up with them. He does definitely does more of that on these early episodes. And then two, what they were kind of hoping he would do. And it's like, okay, if he does the whole Hollywood thing, he's got an inside track to a lot of people and could share stuff that maybe listeners will go, oh, did you hear Orson talking about this gossip about whatever and tune in. But they got less and less of that and they got more and more of the political bent, which is not what leads to I don't think at the time listeners also it leads them into into trouble and and uh they weren't probably happy about that I I did want to dovetail though on what Zach said really quick and just uh the two people that I think would be so interesting if they were still around today to see what they would do with with YouTube with podcasting with all these things are of course Orson Welles and Jack Benny because Jack would go from vaudeville to radio to television uh, and even without him, we've we've dragged Jack into the world of podcasting and into the world of YouTube and things. Uh, and that's without him having any active participation, being as he passed away in 74. So uh, having him alive and doing things would have been such an interesting thing to see what he would do. And, of course, with Orson and any medium that he was involved in he was always interesting so seeing what he would have done would have been interesting as well but uh, i think we'll leave it there uh thank you folks i hope you enjoy this episode don't forget to tune into the episode we actually have orson after we're done talking whether you know it or not and uh, and we'll be back next week for some more orson um sharing about orson and his commentaries uh what an interesting interesting treat you have in store for yourself if you keep listening to these commentaries it's so interesting the directions that they'll go in the future i think these first ones to me aren't as strong as some of the later ones but they're still interesting so we'll go with that thanks everybody stay tuned to this station for keca's new program with orson wells this is orson wells today i'd like to give you two sides of a big argument in hollywood and i'm sticking my neck way out and making a couple of predictions We'll get to that in just a minute. But first, we want to tell you something about the makers of Lear Radios. Many of you may not have heard of Lear Radios. We're not surprised, because not many of you fly a plane. But if you do fly, in fact, if you've flown a plane any time since 1930, the name Lear is an old friend to you. For you see, that name has been on fine aircraft radios for more than 15 years. It's been on radios made to keep pilots steadily in touch with their fields. The kind of radios made to guide them unerringly on their courses. This is why we say that since 1930, Lear has been the name men fly by. Now, for the first time, Lear is building home radios. And you can guess what is happening. All that experience with extra precision, all that knowledge of what makes the finest in radio, all that ability to make dependable, efficient sets is going into fine home radios you can get for your home. In a few minutes, we'll tell you more about these Lear home radios. And now, the words we always use on these broadcasts. Mr. Wells' opinions are his own.
and do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. Where you live, has the world come to an end? Around here, everything seems fairly normal. But according to a man over in Pasadena, the whole works were supposed to be all washed up the day before yesterday. A number of his ardent followers prepared themselves for the explosion by saying their prayers and holding their ears. But my best information is that the world, including Pasadena, is still open for business. But the prophet, occupationally dauntless, is back at his trade. It's the queerest of all trades, this soothsaying. And whether plied by statesmen or phrenologists, the most dispensable. We have beheld our military leaders heavy with wisdom and gold braid, recording their guesses on many a front page and getting it wrong every time. And then there's Drew Pearson. As a Washington reporter, he's one of our most valuable institutions. But I think my friend Drew is most diverting in those eerie moments when he picks up his little crystal ball and reads the future. And most of the time, Pearson the Prophet gets it right. Accepting only his public guessings, which after all are based on Drew's own canny observation, I take a poor view of all forms of rune-casting, augury, bump-and-wrinkle-reading, and, and horoscope-making. Be it political or personal, I think fortune-telling is the bunk. But although I now propose to peer into the future, and once upon a time myself broadcast some trifling threats concerning the world's ending, don't think I take myself as seriously as the man in Pasadena. It is not generally known in the typical Drew Pearsonian phrase, and it will be officially denied. But the fact is that I was not born with a veil over my face, and when a babe I was not stolen away by the gypsies, in spite of which serious handicaps, here I go with a whole handful of predictions. Prophecy number one. Nine countries will have the atom bomb within three years. That's the best private guess in our State Department and in the foreign ministries of the world. Prophecy number two. Eric Johnson, a good man, will do a good job for the motion picture industry. Sub-prediction. The group he's taking charge of will still be called the Hayes Office, and we movie makers still won't be able to put things on the screen which are allowed daily in every comic strip. Prophecy number three. Next week we'll see a general speed-up in the London Conference of Foreign Ministers. But the peoples of the world will find the results unsatisfactory. Hot tip department. In the army, the chiefs of the entertainment committee are working out a plan for entertainment in the next world war. Bureau of Unanswerable Questions. In the midst of atomic battle, who will entertain who? And where will the performances take place? This brings up the current argument on the matter of USO camp shows. In Hollywood, Several of our leading citizens have found time in their busy lives to take a rap at entertainment for the G.I.s overseas and to raise rumpuses about accommodations and even such vaudevillians trivia as billing and publicity. Now, these beefers are not all of them chronic prima donnas or fluff-brained hands. The most convincing and impassioned of all the complaints came from one of the nicest men I know in our business, Frank Sinatra who says a lot of USO shows insult the intelligence of the G.I.s and that lots of special service officers are, to quote him, shoemakers in uniform. Another friend of mine whose service overseas exceeds his record by 17 weary and often dangerous months comes right back at him with language even stronger. This was Marlena Dietrich, who spent the better half of one year letting me saw her in half in the Mercury Wonder Show for servicemen. 
Recently, she spent her furlough as our house guest, and before she left for Paris again last week, Marlena reminded me that there have been sent overseas up to now 700 entertainment units, that there's been a show every two weeks in every Army and Navy hospital in the country, the grand total being 64,989 performances. I asked Bob Hope about it. Well, I've been traveling all over the world for the last four years, Orson, Bob told me, and maybe in some of the places we went to some of the time, little mechanical things weren't just what they ought to have been. But the effort was always there, and the effort was always good. There have been a lot of beefs about the inefficiency of the whole army, but we won the war, didn't we? And as for the USO and the special service officers involved in it, a tremendous amount of entertainment went to a tremendous number of boys. They needed it mighty badly. Now I hear this talk about reducing the budget for entertainment. That's bad. The men overseas are more homesick than they ever were, and they need cheering up more than they ever did. But wait a minute, said Bob. You just wanted a word or two from me. You didn't ask for a book. So I thanked Bob Hope and told him that just about wrapped it up, and I think it does too. I might add, however, that if General MacArthur can speak out of turn, as a lot of people think he did last week, it isn't very surprising that a couple of actors may possibly have spoken out of turn too. Sinatra, as a matter of fact, feels every bit as righteous as MacArthur. And with very good reason, too, I think, because the kick he launched wasn't his. Hundreds of fighting men with bad recreational equipment, things like that, asked him overseas as a free, uncensored civilian to speak up in their behalf. But from now on, I guess Frank agrees with me that all squawks against overseas entertainment for G.I.s had better come from the G.I.s themselves or be directed to those of us who aren't in uniform and can never do enough. You may remember the woman from Weehawken. Whatever a fan is, she's the opposite. She wrote me the opposite of a fan letter before this radio series even started, demanding to know why it should start at all. Well, here's the second broadcast, and here's another letter from Weehawken already. Dear Madam, you'll excuse me, please, ladies and gentlemen, if I pause again to answer my mail. Dear Madam, concerning my comments on the political scene, you say I sound like one of those starry-eyed dreamers who wants to give a bottle of milk to every Hottentot. To this, madam, I can only say that if giving said milk to said Hottentot will make him a customer for an icebox to keep it in, I think the milk is a good business investment. A couple of days ago in New York, several Americans sat down to the typical meal of a liberated European. The main course consisted of a single can sardine. And the entire dinner was consumed in about the same length of time it's taken me to tell you about it. Such meals are being held in towns and cities throughout the country, and the difference in the cost is being put into a fund to purchase available food for shipment to our allies in this recent war. May I suggest, madam, that you treat yourself one day next week to such a meal. You may be glad to lose a pound or two. I know I am. Anyway, it'll help you get my point. If we Americans would eat three less ounces of meat a week and save the amount or cost of these three ounces in money, we'd be able to take care of the meat shortage in Europe for the entire winter. I'd like to see such a program organized with the same ingenuity and enthusiasm we've given to our bond drives. I know we could do it because we are a generous people. We're also shrewd businessmen. Anyway, we have been up to now. We ought to know we can't do business with a bankrupt world. And, madam, the welfare of a woman across the ocean from you is the welfare of Weehawken.
The people of Europe, to name just one continent, are your next-door neighbors. Unless they're eating properly, your neighborhood will get to be very run-down and shabby-looking. You'll find yourself living in a slum and without any place on our planet to move to. Thanking you for your interest, my dear madam. I remain as ever your obedient servant. Oh, P.S., I find it difficult to believe that last week's mention of bullfighting encouraged the Weehawk and Young to civil violence and the ten varieties of mayhem you're kind enough to catalog. But I promise you, one more broadcast and the subject is closed. And you know, friends, come to think of it, I'm glad my critic from Weehawken wasn't with us in Tijuana last Sunday afternoon. You remember I told you Rita and I were taking Joe Cotton and Lenore across the border for their first corrida? Well, we arrived at that border with just time enough and then discovered that we'd locked the trunk compartment in the back of the car and left the key at home. The customs men, persuaded that we were so many jewel smugglers, made us park stateside of the line and proceed on foot. Once in Mexico, we chartered a taxi cab made out of what must surely have been the second automobile ever built. And in this, we floundered and jounced, feeling like the makings of a Maya milkshake for long ages. I reminded my wife and friends what Chesterton had to say about adventure. Adventure, I quoted between agonized gasps, adventure is an attitude taken towards discomfort. And at this, the four of us struck the right attitude and the roof of the car. Well, at long last, we came to the ball ring and found a faena in full tilt. It was the first, and I'm very, very much afraid, the last that Joe Cottons will ever see. It happened to be a very bad bullfight, which means it was a very bloody farce. The man and the beast went at each other without the semblance of dignity. There were, besides, unpleasant accidents. Nothing will convince the Cottons that Reed and I are not more than a trifle touched in the head on this matter of bullfighting knowing full well that most of you listening must share their suspicions, certainly their sympathy for the bull, I offer in our defense a little story, a true story. But first, your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. For just a minute or so, we'd like to tell you a little about the new Lear radios. We say new because they haven't been seen before in homes. Only aviators have had them. They were made only for the exacting service of the airlines. This kind of manufacture takes special craftsmanship. And it's this kind of craftsmanship Lear knows best. It's the kind of craftsmanship and precise engineering that goes into the Lear radio for your home. The Lear line gives you a wide range to choose from. Some sets include television. Some have record players and automatic record changers. Some provide the wonderful Lear recording you've seen advertised. And there's FM and worldwide shortwave. With all their fine engineering and latest developments, you might expect Lear radios to be high-priced. But they're not. And now, Mr. Wells has a few words about next week. Well, next week we'll have the story. It turns out there isn't time enough for it now. It goes something like this. Once there was a bull, a fighting bull, whose name was Bonito, and who lived in a ranch where fighting bulls are raised and grew up with his fellows, fed and pampered, as such creatures always are, and thoughtfully avoided by all humans, avoided by all, that is, except one, a little boy, the child of one of the ranch hands. Between this fighting bull, Bonito, and this little boy, there grew up a friendship as real and warm as any ever known between a boy and his dog. 
The villain of this little drama, you'll be glad to hear, is the bullfighter. And better still, is a happy ending. But now I'll have to say goodbye, in the words of the serial, to be continued. And I promised you, I remember now, to tell about the greatest man in modern popular music. But I haven't room left on this quarter of an hour to do him justice, so we'll put him off till next time. Anybody who guesses his name gets a free membership in the club I'm founding for the occasion. Anybody can tell me what the sign in the parking lot in front of the ABC studios means gets a handful of free tickets to their favorite radio show and my everlasting gratitude. The sign reads, No Bailment Created Here. I will repeat that. The exact words of the sign are as follows. No bailment created here. I asked my lawyer about it. He was evasive. I even asked the man who runs the parking lot, What does bailment mean, I demanded, and who'd want to create it? I've been working here for two years, he told me, and I haven't been able to find out. Maybe I'll have the answer by next week anyway. Please let me come to call again. Thanks for this time. Till next Sunday, same time, same station, my sponsors, the makers of Leo Radios, and I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company. <laughs>